Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Hello, everybody, and this week's episode is an interview with author Jenny L. Walsh. Uh, Jenny Walsh, she just wrote a historical fiction novel about Bonnie and Clyde that comes out this week. Okay, it's it's mostly about Bonnie. It is called Becoming Bonnie, and in our conversation, we talked about, you know, Bonnie and Clyde themselves, who they were, what their deal was, but also what it's like to take actual real historical events and turn them into narrative. Uh, that is something that I think a lot of people who are history popularizers and communicators, like myself, uh, feel a certain tension between. Um, we have the tension between being accurate and also making a good story. Uh, I'm somebody who privileges accuracy. Uh, with me, it's always about what actually happened, what do we know, that gets primacy. I was talking to Jenny Walsh, and she was somebody who privileges the narrative, a good story. So she was coming at that from kind of a different direction, and it was kind of neat to get her perspective on that. So please enjoy. So hi, it's excellent talking to you. You too. Yeah. Um, so you're the author of Becoming Bonnie? Yes. And that comes out when? May 9th. May 9th. Okay. And um, how, do you, how would you sum it up in your like 30-second elevator pitch? Um, I can give you one line. Uh, so Becoming Bonnie is the untold story of how wholesome Bonnie Parker becomes part of the infamous Bonnie and Clyde duo during the 1920s. All right. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, before we get into the book, though, for the people who are listening and might be unfamiliar with them, um, who were the actual Bonnie and Clyde? Like, what was uh, what was their story? So they were actually very unfamiliar to me as well when I first sought out to tell this story. So I kind of learned as I went along as well, which was fun. Um, I'll start with Clyde, even though he's the second half of the duo. So he was born in 1909 into a farming family. And at a time, this was a good thing because during the First World War, there was a ton of expansion in farming. And this was because we were sending so much over to Europe, to Britain and France to help them out. And we were doing this on a regular basis. But mm-hmm. then after the war, you know, things things changed. The tide changed and Europe began growing its own food again. So there was this whole plethora of American farmers who were left with a lot of overproduction. And as a result, there was a huge movement of resettlement. And Clyde Barrow's family was one of them. So they had to leave behind their farm and go to Dallas and take part in the urbanization that was happening during those times. And they did this during the 1920s. And uh, it's fair to say that the roaring 20s weren't so roaring for everyone. I think we think of those great gaspy inspired extravagant parties, but there was a very strong reality of the upper echelon experiencing those grand times. And then the people like the Clyde's family who really had a very different existence. Mm-hmm. So much so that like when they moved to West Dallas, they lived under their wagon for a great deal of time. And it was a big deal for them when they actually were able to buy a tent. And uh, so it was very yeah. hard for them to get their footing. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's, imagine that. that's some pretty extreme poverty right there. 
Yeah, and I think they and they fought a little bit, and they later opened a service station, and they lived in an apartment in the back of it. So they got their footing a little bit, but I read some accounts of how the Barrow family just was looked down upon, and there's a stigma associated with them. Mm-hmm. So as a teenager, we have Clyde, who didn't have the best start to his life, and probably was looking at his future and not feeling too confident about it. And I'm speculating a little bit here, but there was a moment in his, in his teenage years where he wanted to enlist in the United States Navy. And I saw this as like a way for him to create a new future for himself, a different path for him to follow. And uh, Clyde probably saw it as this huge opportunity so much so that he ended up getting a tattoo of USN prior to even trying to enlist. But it turns out that when he went, uh, you know, to sign over his name and begin his service, he received a medical rejection because uh, when he was younger, I'm not exact sure the, of his age, but he suffered from either yellow fever or malaria, and it took some of his hearing. Oh. Yeah. So instead of him beginning this grand new journey and, you know, making something of himself, he was turned away. And I think it was just easy for him to slip into this life of crime of cracking safes and robbing stores and stealing cars and getting arrested. Uh, one of his first arrests was with his older brother, Buck. And it was kind of a, a weird arrest. It was for a truckload of stolen turkeys. Mm-hmm. But uh, it escalated from there, as we all as we all know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, he got his start well before he met Bonnie. Um Bonnie's story started a little differently. She was born a year later in 1910 in this little town southwest of Dallas called Rowena. Uh, She was a middle child, uh, and her dad was a bricklayer. So they were doing pretty okay for themselves. And Emma, her mother, had these huge aspirations to climb the social ladder. She was going to be somebody. Their family was going to be important. She She had stars in her eyes. And I think she was passing on that dream to her daughter. But it all kind of abruptly ended because Bonnie's dad ended up dying when Bonnie was only a couple years old. So Emma had to pack up her three children and they ended up moving to Cement City, Mm -hmm. which was an industrial suburb that's actually now part of West Dallas. Um, but it was this small, humble place, and she ended up working her fingers to um, the bones, Emma did, as a seamstress. So times were hard, and money was tight, and throughout it all, I think Bonnie had these grand dreams for herself to have her 15 minutes of fame. She wanted to be in the spotlight, and I think she fought hard for it for a while. She was a straight-A student. She won spelling bees. She was in pageants. Um, she would get up on stage and do her thing. So I think she was, uh, she was a girl who lived on her dreams. Hmm. Excellent. But, uh, either way you shake it. I think in the end, they were just like two kids who were kind of dealt a pretty bad hand of cards, like right from the get go. Although that's no excuse for their future behaviors. Right. So yeah, their future behaviors, they ended up becoming this like infamous crime duo and, yeah. uh, yeah, what does that entail? I mean, I think a lot of people have seen might be familiar with the movie, but um, what what did they what did they actually do in their real life career? Um, it started with Clyde um, being paroled from prison. He was in there for two years, and he had a, a 
pretty bad experience. I don't want to give too much away for those unfamiliar with what happened while he was in prison. Mm-hmm. But he, he got out and I'll say he was more or less harassed by the, by the police and the law. He was trying to live this honest life or as honest as he, as he could. And so he was keeping employment, but he would often get picked up by the law just for no reason, but for them wanting to shake him down and they would take him in um, they would question him, but they didn't have anything on him. So they eventually would have to let him go and he would have to walk whatever distance, however many miles it was back to either his home or to his place of employment. And often when he returned, he was either late to start his shift or he missed it entirely. And he was often just let go. I mean, I can't blame the employers. Like, why would they want to have someone who was unreliable and who also had the law's attention on them, you know, pretty much on a daily basis? So he essentially would break parole. And there became a point where he had to leave Dallas. Um, So when he left, he fell into this routine where he had to steal to survive. And a lot of people from, from the films and from the, different stories since then have, have seen the, the Barrow gang that um, robbing banks and what have you, but it really wasn't something they did too often. Clyde felt a lot more comfortable robbing places that had a payroll and mm-hmm. that were like these small mom and pop shops or grocery stores or what have you. Okay. Um, but I think Clyde had this intense fear of going back to prison and he's been cited as saying like, I won't go back. So whenever Clyde was cornered, he, you know, shot his way out, which is scary, but it's how he felt he needed to survive. And uh, I saw these other sources, too, that mentioned, and I hope this is true because I feel like it makes Clyde less of a horrible person, but um, Clyde wouldn't shoot first. Huh. He, he would uh, He would shoot and he would, you know, shoot a lot of rounds from his machine gun but he would he would shoot of necessity to stay alive okay how did they end up becoming such a cultural force and were they like a cultural force in their own lifetime or was that only um later on it was during their lifetime so um i'll say it was a perfect storm i hate using the word perfect in relation to (laughs) everything that went along with bonnie and clyde but there was a few factors that went into them being so popular during when they were alive. And I think one of the biggest things was that their spree took place during the Great Depression. So we all know that times were very difficult during those years. And the impression that I got from research was that people were looking for a distraction from their own lives. And you had these newspapers that were cheap. They were two cents. They were accessible. Um, They were so prevalent, in fact, that homeless people would use the newspapers as blankets and they became known as Hoover blankets as reference, you know, to President Hoover and people's dislike of him. Um, But these newspapers were putting headlines about Bonnie and Clive and people were buying them. So they kept putting them in the headlines. Um, So it really became this inexpensive, easy way for people to be entertained And it sounds horrible because they did horrible things. But I think it was just a product of the times. Um, I also read some interviews of people 
who referred to Bonnie and Clyde almost as folk heroes. Mm-hmm. And it made me wonder if they almost saw them as fictional right. or maybe even as a symbol. So Clyde himself was very anti-establishment. And he was this way at a time where people didn't trust the banks or the government or the law. Um, I know I mentioned how Clyde himself had it out for the law because in prison he went through, I'll say, some brutality. And then after he was paroled, like I said, he was harassed a little bit by the police. Um, So he, uh, he had this viewpoint that I think other people could relate to. And those viewpoints were often published in the newspaper because people wanted to hear it. And those movements and his actions and his thoughts actually coincided with the introduction of wire photos, which essentially are just photo telegrams. Right. So um, when Bonnie and Clyde were doing their crimes in Texas or Arkansas or where have you, it would have been this regional interest. But because of the wire photos, they became this national element that everyone all of a sudden could open a newspaper and see photos of Bonnie and Clyde. And I think seeing a face makes it more real and, you know, more, more drama filled, something you latch onto more. And uh, the photos that were often in the papers were the ones that were recovered from Joplin, which is the ambush that most people know of when they hear the Bonnie and Clyde story. Um, Bonnie and Clyde barely got away with their posse, um, but they left behind a bunch of their belongings, including those infamous photos that they took. Um, And it's funny because those photos were ones that Bonnie and Clyde had intended just to be something they did for fun, just joking around. Uh, It depicted them in a way that wasn't quite realistic. Mm -hmm. There's photos of Bonnie um, pointing a gun at Clyde's Clyde's chest, And they both have these smirks on their faces. And there's another photo where Bonnie's actually very provocative. She has her hip out. She's holding a gun. Her foot's up on the car's fender, and she has a cigar in her mouth. I've seen that photo. Yeah, that is like the picture of Bonnie and Clyde. Everywhere. Yeah, and that photo, like, it was everywhere during those times as well. And it turned a lot of heads. So in a snap, there's Bonnie, who's being referred to as a cigar-smoking gun mall. And it definitely raised eyebrows. And it's interesting because it mortified Bonnie. And she's quoted as saying how nice girls don't smoke cigars. Mm-hmm. And she despised the fact that that was the photo that she became known for. Oh. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's sad, but in a, oops, kind of brought it upon yourself kind of way. But, I know. Like, I'm sort of disappointed to learn that because they look really cool. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, she did it. No, it happened. But I don't think she was trying to be as badass as we all thought she she is. Right. Um, So how did you get interested in them? How did you uh, come to how did you decide, like, I'm going to write a book about, you know, Bonnie, uh, Bonnie and Clyde, specifically Bonnie? Like, what drew you to it? Yeah, so I feel like I need to state that I'm not a historian That's or like fine. an investigative <laughs> journalist. I, I don't think of myself as a historian either. I think of myself as a history popularizer. Okay, I like that. I'm going to use that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, history really is an interest that's only grown in me over the past you know decade or so. So it's really been a learn-as-I-go experience. Um, but I really enjoy reading historical fiction. That's typically what I pick up. 
So it's a genre that I wanted to write about as well. Um, in our family, my husband is very much the history buff. He's the one that always has the documentaries on and reading the nonfiction accounts on pretty much everything. Um, so we were trying to figure out what I wanted to write about. And I knew I wanted to do um, historical. And I liked the idea of writing about a real life figure. Um, I think th- I think that was because I'm always a bit more intrigued by those, you know, quote unquote, inspired by or based on stories. Um, so we were throwing around ideas and Bonnie and Clyde were mentioned. And I knew the basics of their spree, but I really didn't know anything more than that. So I didn't know how they became outlaws. I didn't know how Bonnie and Clyde got to the point where they were willing to kill to stay alive. And I was wondering what was motivating Bonnie from a deeper level to hook up with somebody like Clyde. And I was just really curious who she was. And then I was also intrigued by the idea of all of this happening during the depression era and how that could have impacted Bonnie and her decisions and her thoughts and her motivations. Um, So when I first began writing Becoming Bonnie, I had set it in the 1930s with Bonnie leaving Dallas with Clyde after he was essentially rejected by Dallas. And they were starting off on their life on the lamb. But as I was writing these opening chapters, and I probably got around three chapters in, and I just realized that so much of the story so far was me trying to fill in backstory to explain why she was doing what she was doing and to make everything plausible. So I realized that I needed to start becoming Bonnie sooner, like a lot sooner. I ended up backing up five years sooner and it pushed me um, to the 1920s. Um, So that was a lot of fun to dive into that world. And uh, so becoming Bonnie is set in the roaring twenties and then the sequel that's coming out in 2018. That one's called, yeah, sequel. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's called Being Bonnie. And that one set very much in the depression era. And it was, it was a, it was a cool element that I was able to have this very strong contrast and settings between the first book and the second book. Okay. Excellent. So what did you, what did you find that you had to uh, invent for the book? Because, you know, there are always certain things that you can't know because they, weren't recorded or written down or photographed or anything like what did you have to bring to her story as a fiction writer? Like what do you have to craft, uh, you know, for Bonnie? As far as Bonnie's origin story, I would say there was a lot I had to craft. Um, I feel like I had a checklist of common things known about Bonnie, like the fact that she was a middle child, the fact that she was a waitress, Um, Her ambitions were documented. The fact that she was musically inclined were documented. And I just took whatever was out there and I almost used them as guideposts and then filled in the rest with whatever else I could find. Like there was this one teeny tiny mention that I probably looked for hours to find because I wanted to put Bonnie in a speakeasy. But I didn't want to put her there unless there was some sort of truth behind it. And I found this one tiny line <laughs> that said that the speakeasy claimed that Bonnie and Clyde had been there. Okay. So in my mind, I was just like, check. Okay, good. She will be in a speakeasy now. So I tried to base everything in a little bit of reality whenever I could. And then I just took it from there. Um, 
there's a couple things that were really brought to life based on reality. Like uh, Bonnie, like I said, her dad had passed away when she's a little girl. So I turned this into a pretty large theme of the book. Um, she's actually called out during the book as having daddy issues. And I didn't use that exact phrase because it didn't exist back in the 1920s, but she was very much implied as making a lot of her decisions because she wanted to make her her father proud of her. Mm-hmm. And then another very large element of the book had to do with the fact that both Bonnie and Clyde were musically inclined. So Bonnie sang and Clyde actually played the guitar and the saxophone. So I had a lot of fun bringing those elements in. And there's this pretty pivotal scene where Bonnie gets up on stage for the first time and sings. And what she sings, I don't want to give it away, but it corresponds with their exact emotions during that point in the book and kind of foreshadows a little bit about what's going to happen. And then uh, there's other elements of music in there as well, like Bonnie and Clyde actually pen a song together. So we see the first two verses of that song in Becoming Bonnie. And then in the sequel, Being Bonnie, we would actually see the final three verses of their song. Okay. Yeah. So what is it like to uh, take a real person and turn them into a character in your book? Um, is it weird? Like, do you have to think, oh, this is somebody's life that I'm like messing with? Or like, is does that like fire to creative process because it gives you a jumping off point? Like, what's that experience like? Definitely acts as a jumping off point. And I would say that weird is definitely one of the words for it. Um, I've actually written about real life people a few times at this point. Becoming Bonnie is my debut. And then next year, like I said, I have the sequel coming out, but I also have a narrative nonfiction series coming out with Scholastic that's for middle graders. Oh. And those stories are featuring young women who, at a young age, accomplish these daring feats of bravery and accomplish these amazing things that inspire other people. So Mm. when I was working on that nonfiction series, there was obviously a very large pressure to get to get it right (laughs) and then I feel like there's a little bit of an added pressure because it's a narrative book and for those unfamiliar that means that it reads not like a biography but as a novel so I had to speculate a, a little bit into dialogue and thoughts and emotions while basing it as much on truth as I can. So there's definitely this fear associated with that nonfiction series that I'm going to mess it up or since it's based on contemporary people, there's a fear that they're going to read it and they're going to be like, what? Like, this is not right. And then I'll be mortified and I'll feel horrible (laughs) Um, with becoming Bonnie and the Bonnie and Clyde story. There wasn't so much a pressure to get it correct because there's so many varying accounts of their stories. Like I even read one article that said Bonnie kill was killed when she was 19 but it's very well documented pretty much in every other source that she was 23. Mm-hmm. And then there's so many different angles that people came at their own stories of their time with Bonnie and Clyde. You have some people from the Barrow gang who were later put in court. So I was reading transcripts of the, of the court documents and you can kind of see them twisting 
the truth a little bit or maybe embellishing or pulling back on some areas because they want it to be seen as better. They want it a lesser, um, a lesser time in jail or a less severe punishment. So you have people twisting. Uh, you also saw that with the law too, because Bonnie and Clyde evaded them a lot. And I think they, they were embarrassed at some point. So you can see them changing the story different from what a newspaper reporter had said or what a witness had said. And then you also have like eyewitnesses who change their tune later on. So there's so many different accounts of Bonnie and Clyde and what happened with them that I, I knew that even if I didn't get it exactly right, it was just like, okay, people are going to understand that it's, I'm not going to get it perfect. Um, I think the, the fear that was associated with becoming Bonnie was the fact that Bonnie and Clyde are very polarizing figures. So I had a bit of anxiety writing about actual people who did actual bad things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm going to generalize and I think I'm going to speak for myself here, but in fiction, we often see people who kill people and I just read it and watch it and go on. But when it's a real life person who's doing the killing, I think it could be harder to digest. Um, Walter White from Breaking Bad, he comes to mind as an example for me. So I think anyone familiar with the story knows that he starts out as a pretty good guy and then life kind of intervenes and his morals and his actions take a nosedive. But because he's a fictional character, I feel like for me at least, I'm more forgiving of his actions because I know that there aren't real life relatives of the victims having these real life reactions and emotions. Um, Quite a thick fun fact that I'll digress for a second here is people in the film industry have actually referred to my storyline as a female breaking bad. Okay. (laughs) That was really fun to hear and fun to be compared to a well-known award-winning TV series. Yeah. And I mean, Walter White, that last episode of breaking bad, I wouldn't call it like a happy ending. No, but he definitely like goes out on terms where you're kind of rooting for him. Yeah, and I think that's what I I tried to accomplish in my novel as well. And I didn't want people to think I was glorifying them in any way. I wanted to be very respectful of what actually happened and who was affected by it. Um, So like I said, that was the fear that goes with it because very real people were hurt. So I think because of all of that, there was times where I almost had to imagine Bonnie and Clyde as non-real. And that wasn't so much in the first book in becoming Bonnie because that story is very much her origin story of how she becomes who she is. I actually start at the beginning calling her by a completely different name. Yeah. Bonalyn, right? Yeah. She goes by Bonalyn and I, Mm -hmm. I wanted to show her evolution in her emotions and her thoughts. And then in something as large and as identifying as her name. So that's really, I think, what Becoming Bonnie is about. It's just this coming-of-age story. And um, we do see some of Bonnie and Clyde's life on the lamb in the first book, but it's really in the second book where we get into the heart of their crime spree that most people are familiar with. So I have uh, well one more big question for you that I feel like any conversation about Bonnie and Clyde has yeah. to uh, touch on. Um, the movie you know, you have the uh, 1967 film, which is one of the most, you know, important Hollywood movies of all time. Um, 
what are your what are your thoughts on the film? It's so interesting because I haven't seen the film in maybe 15 years or more. Mm-hmm. But even though it's been so long that when my husband and I were brainstorming who to write about, it was that film that made me think of Bonnie and Clyde. And what stuck with me since all those years ago and after watching the film, it wasn't necessarily the horrible things I did. And I, I couldn't really remember the snippets of actually what they did and what crimes they committed. But I just remember <coughs> this loyalty that they had toward each other, this grand love that they had. And that was what I wanted to bring into my own story. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, I haven't watched it, but I want to watch it. But I, I've been holding off until I'm done officially with writing both of my stories because I know the film took some creative liberties and I just didn't want anything to influence what I was writing and I didn't want to, you know, copy anything that they had done. Right. So I'm excited to wrap it up, wrap up my story so I can, you know, get a glass of wine on Saturday night and, and then watch the uh, film from the 1967. Excellent. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you feel is important to speak to? Um, I don't think so. I mean, you asked a lot of great questions. All right. Wonderful. Well, in that case, uh, one more time, the release date of the book. May 9th. May 9th. Okay. So if people are listening to this on the day it comes out, May 8th, it's coming out tomorrow. Yes. Coming out tomorrow. And I hope you pick it up. All right. Well, Jenny Walsh, thank you very much. It was great talking to you. Thanks for having me. This was fun. All right, folks. Hope you appreciated that conversation. Uh, Thank you very much for listening. Uh, as always, this show is on social media, Facebook, facebook.com slash weird history podcast. I myself, I'm on Twitter at Joe Streckert. Uh, feel free to follow me. Please do that. Uh, we're on iTunes. Uh, give us ratings, reviews, all that. Uh, and this is a listener supported show. If you want to support the show, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com, sign up for a monthly donation. That would be excellent and also awesome of you. Uh, Thank you very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye. Mm